I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Jeff Goodall, author of The Water Will Come, Rising Seas, Sinking Cities, and the Remaking of the Civilized Ward, uh, a World. <laughs> um, Jeff is a contributing editor at Rolling Stone and the author of five books, including How to Cool the Planet, uh, geoengineering and the audacious quest to fix Earth's climate, which won the two, the 2011 Grantham Prize Award of Special Merit. His previous books include Sunnyvale, a memoir about growing up in Silicon Valley, which was a New York Times notable book, and Big Coal, the dirty secret behind America's energy future. What if Atlantis wasn't a myth, but an early precursor to a new age of great flooding? Across the globe, scientists and civilians alike are noticing rapidly rising sea levels and higher and higher tides, pushing more water directly into the places we live, from our most vibrant, historic cities to our last remaining traditional coastal villages. With each crack in the great ice sheets of the Arctic and Antarctica and each tick upwards of Earth's thermometer, we are moving closer to the brink of broad disaster. Here to talk about this and to talk about this in, in, in the context of his most recent book is Jeff Goodall. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Well, it's uh, unfortunately, it seems to me, it's like, uh, it always seems to me a, a sort of a prediction of gloom, uh, doom and gloom uh, for our planet, and that no one's really doing any, addressing the issue or doing anything about it. Because first of all, climate change doesn't seem to be a sexy topic. It seems to be something that people, if they think about it, are terrified to even think about it. So we don't, and we really don't do anything in terms of what can we do? That's the other question. Uh, can't do anything about it. So I don't want to think about it. It's sort of, that's the reaction of the general public. Uh, but uh, it, it, I, it seems to me that you, in writing this book, obviously don't feel that way. There are things that we can do or should be doing when we think about uh, infrastructure and building our cities and, and living the lifestyles that we live right now. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's um, lots of interesting and uh, important stuff going on to deal with this. Unfortunately, we're just not dealing with it um, fast enough, um, given the changes that we've put in motion, um, you know, after 100 years or so of uh, burning fossil fuels, which is, you know, what is warming up our planet. Um, but, you know, uh, this is happening whether or not people kind of um, believe in it or not. The physics of this are very straightforward. Uh, climate change is uh, happening in real time around us now. Um, you know, the science is as real as the science of gravity. Um, this is not a, you know, this is not a kind of fringe science. This is happening in real time, and you know we're um, going to have to be dealing with it in real time, and we and we already are. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time in Miami for this book, and um, you know they're already seeing um, increasing flooding there, tides rising higher and higher as our planet warms, and the great ice sheets begin to melt, and that's just going to um, accelerate over time. So I think that really the question is not whether we want to believe it or not, or whether we want to deal with it or not, but whether we'll deal with it sort of in an intelligent and forward-thinking way or in a kind of um, denial and, in, and, you know, in a reactive way. 
Well, so far, it seems to me it's been in a denial and reactive way. And you give Miami as an example, which I guess is a city that they just, it ha- you know, has been a city that, what, it was built on a swamp. And it just, you know, development and development, you know, developers just, uh, you know, put up the buildings they want to put up and uh, leave it at that and go on to next. And it's really all about... I guess the money, isn't it? And, and very little regard to the science that you're talking about. So is, is, is Miami a template for what other cities in the United States are doing as well as the countries that you've visited around the world? Well, Miami's risks are particularly, you know, Miami's particularly at risk for sea level rise because it's a very, um, uh, flat. The whole, all of South Florida is very flat. Uh, as anyone who's been there knows, there's no real hills or mountains. So it's very at risk at flood. Um, there's a lot of real estate right on the water, um, as anyone who's been there knows. And uh, because of the particularities of geology there, the, the kind of limestone that that um, all the houses and buildings are built on there is is porous, and so you can't build seawalls and things that you can in other places for um, kind of temporary defenses. So every every city is different. Um, you know, I started this book by thinking about Miami and realizing how much trouble it was in in the coming decades. And then I spent, um, you know, a couple of years traveling around the world and looking how, at how other cities are, are dealing with it. And, you know, every city is different. Some cities uh, um, have less of a problem, will have less of a problem with sea level rise. A city like Seattle, which is very hilly and, you know, doesn't have a lot of sort of low, flat beachfront, will certainly be in better shape. Um, cities like New York, um, you know, there's a lot of um, infrastructure and housing and things at risk there, but there's also high ground to retreat to um, because of the granite that a lot of the, uh, especially Manhattan, is built on. They can build seawalls and things like that, and they're already making plans to do that. So, so every city has its own kind of problems and its own kind of risk. Uh, and everyone's dealing with it in better or worse ways. But I think, broadly speaking, you know, almost all the cities I visited, you know, they understand that this is going to be a problem because it's it's happening now. And the question is, you know, what to do and how how much to invest and where to invest. And, you know, ultimately, it's going to come down to thinking about how to relocate people to higher ground. So what you're saying, each one of these cities obviously has very unique and I guess, special problems. Uh, and are you saying that the, the cities around the United States, because um, you've also traveled across many countries, other, as you said, many countries as well, um, that the reaction to, let's say, the, the powers that be, the people in charge, do understand that this is science. It's not whether you believe in climate change, as you said before. That's not the issue. It's climate. The climate is changing. This is happening. Now, what we're going to do about it is, you know, I guess we haven't really we haven't really decided. There really isn't a plan. Does there need to be a plan? Does there need to be an overall plan? A plan from the on the federal level? I mean, are, you, are we handling these things city by city? As you, uh, or, or you know, and also it seems to me it sounds very defensive. Like we're sort of like reacting to um, what's happening in these cities. You know, rather than yeah, being proactive. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you know, first of all, you know, it, um, we, it's certainly uh, you know, adapting to, to climate change, which is what we're talking about here, um, is going to be very expensive. And um, cities and states know this. And, um, and, for example, in the Gulf Coast, they have a $50 billion plan to help to um, re- 
restore the coastline and keep cities like Baton Rouge and New Orleans from sinking further into the water. And they are quite clear about the urgency of doing that. But, you know, without federal assistance, without, you know, we have a president who thinks that climate change is a Chinese hoax. Um, you know, that's a real big problem when you think about the kind of money and the kind of thinking that needs to to um, happen on a broad level to really be able to make the kind of changes that we need to make. You know, and so it is defensive in a certain way, but it's defensive because, you know, we've spent 30 years, 40 years now uh, talking about climate change. Scientists have been, have been warning about the risks of it, and we've sort of done basically very little, if anything, here in the U.S. to um, reduce fossil fuel consumption. Uh, that's beginning to change now as, you know, solar energy is, is in many places cheaper than fossil fuels, and uh, there's a big energy revolution happening, but it's happening too slowly. And so it's really important to continue that push to cut carbon emissions, but um, the reality is we've put so much CO2 into the atmosphere that um, we're going to see these real changes in our climate, and we have to um, begin to prepare for them. So have we gone, I guess I'm just over the brink? I mean, have have we just let it go too far? Have we not addressed the issue? Have we not addressed the problem? Have we not addressed climate change <clears throat> And um, up until this point? And is it too late? Is it too late for some cities? Maybe no, not it's, others? it's not too late at all. I think it's really important to underscore that, you know, this is not a is it too late or is it not kind of a situation. Um, it's a It's a progressive situation. It's like... You know, it, it, we, the sooner we address uh, reduction of carbon emissions, the sooner we, we begin to get seriously, you know, get off and getting off of fossil fuels, the more we can limit the damage that we will cause by overheating our planet. So it's not a kind of um, is it too late or is it not scenario. It's, a, um, it's, it's sort of more like, you know, smoking or something. Like the longer you smoke, the higher your, your risks are of of getting lung cancer. And so the sooner you quit, the better you are. And it's not dissimilar from that. So, but unfortunately, we've been going on for so long that, that there's you know, a good amount of change that's sort of built into the system. Um, and so we have to both work hard to cut carbon emissions uh, and, and work hard to rethink how we live, especially on coastlines or in areas that are prone to wildfire, which are... Um, you know, dramatically increasing because of the heat, you know, because the planet's heating up and that's causing more areas to dry out and rainfall patterns to change and things like that. So, uh, you know, things like wildfires are another um, example of what we're going to be seeing more of as our, as our climate changes. Well, it's interesting that you made the comparison to smoking, you know, to, you know, one should not smoke and it, the more you smoke over time, the worse it gets. Uh, I, I think the other comparison I mean, I think the comparison is, is true in another way. The fact is that people don't really react, just we as the general public, to these kinds of issues until we have massive fires on the West Coast or we have, you know, horrific flooding in, in, in the South uh, because we don't see it. We don't see it on a daily basis. And if we don't see it, we don't tend to to want, we don't tend to react to it actually. So uh, isn't that one of the, you know, attitude change? We need a certain attitude change, I think, at least with uh, just the general public so that they are really can grasp, I guess, the importance of doing something, electing the right kinds of leaders, investing the right kinds of monies. And I don't 
really see that happening? Maybe you do. Obviously, you've had a lot more experience. I guess that's one thing I want you to address. And the second thing is, let's say having traveled to, I think I have here you like 12 countries, maybe even more. Um, is, are, is there any, are, are there any countries who are really addressing climate change and doing a great job and something that we can emulate? I mean, I know in New York City, I'm in New York City. It's like, well, we can look to the Netherlands because they are at sea level and look what they've done. And so, you know, New York City is similar to that. So if we, you know, look, take their science, scientists and have them, um, you know, utilize some of the same techniques that they've used in the Netherlands in, in New York City, we'll be fine. Right. And, and, you know, that's, um, uh, you know, better than, than not doing anything. But I think that the idea that we can just do what the Dutch do is, you know, I mean, they have a lot of expertise in dealing with water in the Netherlands. You know, 60% of the Netherlands is, you know, under, is below sea level and they've been building walls and dikes and things like that for a thousand years. So they have a lot of expertise in that kind of engineering, but but even the the Dutch are understanding that the era of sort of walls and dikes are kind of coming to a close. And the new man, the new mantra in um, in the Netherlands, which I discovered when I during my travels there, is this idea of living with water, figuring out ways instead of trying to wall it off to to live with water, which means things like floating houses, you know. Um, giving floods room to spread out rather than trying to wall them off. Um, just, you know. Learning how to scuba to... dive? Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> well, no, not really. But it, it's more about, it's more like, you know, it, it, you know, think about Venice. Venice is a city where you, you know, that is living with water and it's a city built around water. And I mean, Venice has plenty of its own problems, um, which I talk about in my book. But as a as a vision of a civilization, uh, what you can do with kind of living with water, it's pretty great. It's a pretty wonderful place, as anyone knows. But, you know, the, the, you know, but the denialism about the problem I discovered is really, you know, particularly pro- a big problem in America. I mean, China doesn't have climate deniers, you know, in the same way that we do. Um, Europe does not have climate deniers in the same way we do. Um, this is a particularly American problem, and it's a particularly American problem, I think, largely because of um, the amount of money that the fossil fuel industry spends lobbying Congress and, you know, the willingness of our political leaders to turn a blind eye um, to to this. And, you know, so, you know, it's been said before that climate change is a, is a problem of democracy, and it, and it sort of is. I mean, you know, it's important to, to make our own personal changes in the sense of, you know, I drive a hybrid car, I live in a small house, all my light bulbs are LED. LED light bulbs, I do everything I can to reduce my carbon footprint in every way I can. And that's important for everyone to do, uh, to take responsibility in a personal way. But it's How many people, really Jeff, do you think are doing that, actually doing that, doing what you said, taking person, personal responsibility, LED lights? Uh, you know, I have my sons are telling me, Buy and I have, uh, a, you know, a, I don't even want to admit it, a, uh, and I won't maybe, but the kind of car that really isn't good for, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not going to tell you what it is, but buy a Tesla, do something, at least buy a car, that, an electric car, or a, uh, you know, do and, and a lot of pressure from. This is of course a younger generation, um, so I assume that there's some hope, at least as you know, in in. You know the Gen X, that generation, and and down. I don't know if that's true or not, but um, I guess my and going back to the question is, do you know a lot of people who, on individual basis, do what you're saying? I mean, is that documented? Like, 
really are conscious. Well, I mean, if you look at yeah. the sales of LED light bulbs, if it's, I mean, if you go to Home Depot, um, in most places, it's, it's increasingly hard to find an incandescent bulb. I mean, the technology, for example, is just getting better and better uh, on, on that and the savings that you, that you make when you know, buying bulb, even though they're still a little bit more expensive, but the amount of savings you get, people are figuring that out. But I think that you made, you brought up a really great point, which is that um, this is a, there's a kind of big generational divide on this. I think young people kind of really get this, and uh, I just literally the last four days um, at some schools in Atlanta talking to young kids, and they completely, completely get it. Um, in a very clear and profound way, and um, and that gives me a lot of hope. Um, the problem is, you know, by the time that they kind of grow up and become um, decision makers, there's going to be that much more kind of you know damage done to the climate by us old folks continuing to um, you know live in, in the old in the old ways and continuing to burn a lot of fossil fuel and and uh, but the young kids really really understand it and i i think it's going to be a defining issue for their generation and i think the other thing is uh you know the culture will support it there is a community of light bulbs you can buy or cars you can buy so everything is out there now so when you you know you're changing attitudes at the same time you know you have companies marketing these these uh, products that are good for the environment good for uh climate so that's, you know, it sort of goes in tandem, doesn't it? Yeah. But I, I also really want to underscore the importance of, um, it's not just about technology, it's about politics. I mean, it's really important um, in, in when we think about how to make this transition and what one can do individually to accelerate this <clears throat> and take responsibility for the kind of world that we're leaving to our children is voting. I mean, we need to vote for people who understand this is an issue. I don't care if they're Republican or Democrat or independent. Um, it's not a partisan issue. It's a it's a global issue. It's a moral issue. It's an economic issue. You know, the Chinese understand um, that, you know, electric cars and solar panels are going to be the industries of the future and are plunging ahead with uh, amazing speed to embrace this. Um, you know, so we're not only putting our, you know, the, this sort of uh, operating system of the planet, which is the climate, you know, at risk. We're also putting our economy increasingly at risk by not plunging full speed ahead into this. So I think that it's way more important than changing your light bulb or driving a Tesla or a Nissan Leaf or a Toyota Prius is pulling the lever on a ballot for a candidate who understands and has some idea or some plan uh, about how to address this and to begin thinking about it. So if you ask people, how many people, uh, politicians in their community, whether it's their mayor or representatives, or, uh, would know who is actually running on a platform that endorses addressing climate change? Uh, I guess I'm asking you that question. You don't really hear a lot of our, many of our politicians really getting out there and saying, you know, this is, you know, this is one of the things that I, you know, that, that is important that, you know, they're running on that kind of a platform. Do you? Well, that's part of the problem is that they is that they don't because there's so much funding um, from the fossil fuel industry is one of the big, big issues. And also because climate change has become a, you know, a kind of cultural litmus test in the same way that issues like abortion or something have become where it's, you know, you're either on one side or the other and it becomes a, 
a kind of test of 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 which side you're on rather than a a kind of um, you know question of reality and science of, of this is happening and so we need to deal with it which, which is how we should be thinking about it and there can be um, answers policy answers from the left and the right about how is the smartest way to do it should we have a carbon tax should we not have a carbon tax you know should we if we do do a carbon tax should it be cap and trade should it be uh, at the wellhead how to, how to do it but it's like right now it's more like you know you know we have a you know the the nazis invading like you know europe in like in world war 2 and we have you know most american politicians not willing to even admit that so they don't even have a plan about how to deal with that but this is not has not always been the case i mean you know john mccain republican he was very outspoken about uh, the urgency of um, dealing with climate change. And even in his presidential campaign, he talked about it a lot. Uh, in places like South Florida, where you see the, this happening in real time, you have Republican congressmen coming out with plans for um, uh, dealing with climate change and dealing with the coastal adaptation. On the Gulf Coast, which is hardly a Democratic stronghold, um, you have real strong bipartisan report. Uh, support for dealing with this. Uh, needless to say, in places like California with Jerry Brown, he's been very outspoken. And California is a great example because, you know, they're the sixth largest economy in the world. The economy is booming and, you know, embracing clean energy and dealing with climate change has been a sort of an engine for that growth and not a, a kind of hindrance to it. So I think you're seeing it. It's just not yet um, as mainstream as it needs to be. So any other, I mean, so what else can we be doing? I still go back to this thing, and I, I speak to a lot of people who say, well, you know, by the time something happens, I'm not going to be here. It'll be my grandchildren's problem, and, you know, it's not my problem uh, because things are okay for now. So I, you know, this is just the way I'm going to live my life. Maybe that's people over 55 or 60, and there are a lot of them. Yeah, I hear that all the time, and I and and I uh, I'm a journalist, and I'm very kind of uh, I'm not in this because I'm an environmentalist. I'm in this because I think that this is a really important story of our time. Um, but when I hear things like that, I get really um, it really upsets me because you know I have children. Uh, I don't know if you have children or not. I don't know if the person, I do. You know the hypothetical the hypothetical pre- people you're talking about who say that have children, but. You know, do they feel no responsibility for the world that they're leaving to their children? I mean, I certainly feel responsibility for my kids. You know, I, I want to be able to send them to college, and I want to be able to think of them having a, a long and healthy life in a world that somewhat represents or resembles the world that I have. I don't want them going off to war. I don't, you know, I would, I would hope that they have long, happy lives as we want for our kids. And our kids are not going to have, or the chances of them having longer and long, happy lives are going to be dramatically changed by the idea of a radically different climate. And, you know, the idea of saying, oh, I'm 60 years old, is not going to hurt me. And and by the way, it is. You know, this is happening now in real time anyway. But, um, but, you know, it's not my problem. It's my kids' problem, so they can deal with it. I mean, I find that to be just horribly selfish and, um, you know, uh, really troubling to me. Well, my issue is maybe a little bit different. My kids are a little bit older, I think, than yours, but they're the ones who say to me, don't be selfish. You know, I told you that you need to buy a a car uh, that uh, isn't 
uh, a gas-guzzling car, and they go down the line with any kind of house I purchase. So uh, uh, the pressure's on, I guess, <laughs> or at least the pressure's Good. on from Good. yeah. You it, <laughs> raise your kids right. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and now I have to live with the consequences because I do feel guilty. But um, Good. yeah, <laughs> so um, and that's what you need. Well, that it works. Guilt, it it does work. I guess you know, putting the pressure on. Well, but, but it's not. I mean, it's. Guilt is one way to think about it. It's also just a sense of, of, you know, they're they're saying, look, mom, you know, be responsible about this. You know, it's it's like, you know, your what your decisions you're making are going to have an impact on me, and I want you to do the right thing. Exactly. Well, we have a couple minutes left, so uh, it's been great talking to you. Obviously, the book you can uh, your book, the water will come. Rising Seas, Sinking Cities, and the Remaking of the Civilized World. And we've been talking to Jeff Goodall. We can buy the book online, Amazon, bookstores everywhere, I assume. But Jeff, also tell us uh, websites that we can go to that will reference what you're doing, uh, you know, more information about the book. Uh, so I assume that we have a couple of those. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, my book, there's a website about my book on uh uh, on my publisher's site, um, was published by Little Brown. You know, I have a, a Twitter feed, uh, which is at Jeff Goodell. Um, you know, you can Google me and read reviews of my book in the New York Times and the Washington Post and many other publications. Um, you know, there's a lot of good, um, uh, straightforward science uh, sites that can help you understand more about the details of climate change that are very nonpartisan, very kind of clear-headed. Uh, among them is one called Climate Central. It's www.climatecentral.com um, that I'm not involved with, but I reference all the time as a really good site. So there's a lot of ways of getting good information out there um, if you want to spend a few moments to look for it. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Great. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Are you a pet parent? If so, you'll want to stay up to date on the latest tech gadgets and advances for your canine or feline friend. With a ton of apps, websites, tech toys, and more, you'll want to be in the know when it comes to the real treasures and the duds. For that information, listen for Pet Lover Geek with host Lorian Clemens. We test and discuss what's hot and what's not on the pet front, so you'll be better informed on Voice America Variety. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do you think about what you really want? Are you looking to change or perfect your environment, your value, your life? We can help. Tune in to Everyday News with the Blantons. Hosted by husband and wife team Mark and Dr. Latasha Blanton, our program will help you find the answers to make the changes in your life with inspiring guests 
that can help you find your sense of place in the world and how you view it. Listen live every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do you know that over 70% of Americans with severe disabilities are unemployed? Are you one of the 2.5 million Americans with epilepsy? If you are or know someone struggling with these issues, tune in to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. On the show, Joyce will discuss these issues as well as others. She will have on nationally known guests that will offer helpful insight on disability matters and let you, the listener, call in with your questions and concerns. So if you struggle with a disability or know someone who does, listen to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. Heard every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time here on voiceamerica.com. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Dr. Thomas J. Sims, MD. He's author of On Call in the Arctic, A Doctor's Pursuit of Life, Love, and Miracles in the Alaskan Frontier. Uh, Dr. Sims is a writer and actor who studied zoology and creative writing at UCLA before attending medical school at Creighton University. After leaving Alaska, he began a private practice and began to write and act, and he now runs a medical consultation practice in the website DocTalkToday.com. He lives in Bend, Oregon. Um, he's written an extraordinary memoir recounting the adventures of a young doctor stationed in the Alaskan bush. Cross the fish out of water stories of northern exposure with the rough and rugged setting of the Discovery Channel's Alaskan bush people and Thomas J. Sims on call in the Arctic, where he relates his incredible experience saving lives in one of the most remote outposts in North America. Imagine a young doctor trained in the latest medical knowledge and state-of-the-art equipment suddenly transported back to one of the world's most isolated and unforgiving environments, Nome, Alaska. Dr. Sims plans to become a pediatric surgeon, drastically, his plans to become a pediatric surgeon, drastically changed when on the eve of being drafted into the Army to serve as a mass surgeon in Vietnam, he was offered a commission in the U.S. Public Health for assignment in Anchorage, Alaska. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Dr. Sims. Thank you very much. I feel like I'm back in Alaska here, up on the mountains in Oregon. It's a cold 24 degrees this morning. So, Well, you didn't get that far away from Alaska. I was actually in Alaska probably about, well, a little, actually around the same time that you were there. But I was in Anchorage, which was a different kind of an experience, and also I was a tourist. Uh, not doing what you were doing in Nome, Alaska, which is way up in the woods, I guess, on the eastern coast of the state. So t- what a story. I mean, you, I mean, this is like, these are amazing stories, obviously, that have had an impact on your life, uh, as, on your family, on your practice, all of it. So what, uh, made you decide to sort of share these stories with us? Um, cause, they have an impact when I, you know, when you read these stories, they also have an impact on the reader. So, um, start with that. Uh, at well, what yeah, point do you say? Uh, and, yeah. And they do. I, I knew, I mean, literally, Catherine, I knew the moment that I stepped off the plane in Nome, uh, and we saw we, we had no place to live. Uh, I had a, a wife who was pregnant, who was term pregnant, ready to have a baby, a two year old daughter. 
We had no place to live, no money, no food. We had nothing. And I saw the living situations there where people lived in homes that were literally made of, you know, driftwood and, and, and uh, tin. And I thought, this is going to be a life-changing thing for us. Uh, I, I wrote my first book when I was 10, so I, I have this, this love of writing. And I, and I knew, uh, I think at that very moment, someday I was going to have to write these experiences down, never knowing what I was looking, you know, to have happen. But I started a journal literally that day, and then fortunately we didn't ha- we didn't have telephones. Uh, we had very sparse mail service, so the way we communicated with our family is we recorded little cassette tapes, and we would send those out down to the lower forty eights. Our family lived in California. They would listen to what we did, and then they would record tapes back to us. Well, thankfully, they did not record over the tapes that we made. And when um, uh, my dear mother-in-law passed away just about four years ago, I guess it was now, we found those tapes. And I thought, wow, between my journal and those tapes, I could reconstruct this experience. Well, you've talked. And I realized about that. that you know I had to learn to adapt to everything. I mean, my wife had to learn to adapt to to uh, having a baby. Literally, when there were no diapers, there was no baby food. I had to deliver my own son. We knew that we had to adapt, and I thought, you know, we can share the experiences that we had, and we can sort of uh, tell people, you know, how we adapted. That that was something everyone could adapt to, to their lives, whether it was you know in the Arctic or whether it was in Portland or my. Miami or wherever it was, we all have extreme circumstances in our life, and I thought I could tell our experiences and help people learn principles in their lives that they could use to adapt to those principles in their own lives. That yeah, was and I think I think you've writing. done that, and I think one of the things when you're put in that when you are in those kinds of circumstances, I also lived in Latin America during that time and, and experienced some of obviously the same things you did. You know that, that ex, first of all, isolation because you are isolated. There's no yeah. as you as you described it. There's no you can't communicate you'd have a problem you can't call somebody and uh, ask them what to do about it because there's no telephone so that whole issue of having to sort of survive on of having to survive on your own and of course you're in the the, it's freezing it's cold it's dark uh, there are all kinds of uh, things that you have to overcome and don't you think that once you've done that then coming back to the United States Oregon it's it's kind of simple. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, the things that we have to deal with, and not, I'm not saying that we don't have horrific problems to deal with, but you really look, see things through a very different, um, filter once you have you've, ex- yeah. Certainly hit that nail on the head. When I started my private practice, it was in a very small town here in Oregon, uh, a very tiny little hospital and about 20 miles away from Salem, which was, you know, a, a major hospital in a major population area. Anytime I ran into any problem that I wasn't comfortable with, picking up the phone and making a phone call and actually reaching somebody <laughs> or having an ambulance to put, you know, a bad patient into transport, I felt like I was on vacation. I mean, I, I really did. Uh, it, it, it's all the difference in the world. And, of course, having the experiences that I have, I think that gave me the confidence that I needed uh, at that point in my life that I was going to make it kind of no matter, you know, what situation I was placed into. Yeah. All right. So talked about some, obviously, some of the very specific experiences that you did have uh, that that uh, were unique to where you were living, obviously, and unique at that particular time. This was in the 70s. So um, what were the, the human interest stories? 
Well, one of my favorite scenes in the book, because it's my favorite thing in life practically, was when my wife went into labor. Um, we were staying in a, in a place that finally the public health service found a temporary location for us to live in. And um, my wife went into labor, and you sort of think about, you know, the, the funny things you always hear about, that someone goes into labor, you pick up the phone, and you call the doctor, and you go to the hospital, and you have the baby. And I figured, oh, my God, there's no one to call. You know, it's me. And it was like, you know, I, I was like almost overwhelmed with what could happen if something terrible would happen. And it's just, it's just one of my favorite stories. One of my last services that I had during my internship uh, was obstetrics. And um, everybody in the obstetrics department knew that we were going to be going up to Alaska. And uh, we had a period of time when we had no um, health insurance. So they actually gave me as a gift a portable delivery kit. That if we had the baby on the plane or we had the baby in an igloo someplace, we could do this delivery. Well, one of the things... Well, I'm going to stop you because I want to know, what is a portable delivery kit? <laughs> I just want to know what that is. There, there, there were... <laughs> Sterile gloves. There was oxytocin, a shot that you give to contract the uterus. Uh, there were wipes to wipe down the baby. There was even a little ink pad that we could take up the baby's footprints. I mean, and some suture material if I needed suture material. A clip for the baby's umbilical cord. I mean, it was all wrapped up in here. And then they, and it was stuff that I didn't ask where they got the supplies because I knew where they got the supplies and I didn't want to know. But they also had one little bottle, a little brown medicine bottle with one little tablet in it and there was a label on that bottle and it said Valium 5 milligrams and it said just in case Was that for you oh, or my... for the your or for the <laughs> Was the Valium for you or for the Well you were it didn't say <laughs> So what happened when my wife finally started labor and I checked her and I thought, we have this clinic thing and we better go over to that clinic. She's in labor. And I thought, oh my God, what am I going to do? And then I remembered that Valium. So I, I opened up that kit and I pulled out that Valium and I described this in great detail in my book. And I took the Valium and then I thought, oh my gosh, I've never taken a tranquilizer in my whole life. What if it puts me to sleep? What if I don't know what I'm doing? So Catherine, what I made, I did is I, I put my finger down my throat and I brought up that Valium. I bit it in two. I swallowed half. I went to my wife and I said, here, take this. And she did. And we went over and we had the baby. I mean, it was as simple as that. That's such a great story. Yeah. And I tell you, it was crazy. Uh, I then had, you know, I lost a very dear friend when I was there, uh, someone that I worked very close with. Uh, there's, of course, scenes about that. Probably one of the most dramatic things that, that I had was I had a, um, a woman. Um, she was actually uh, not an Eskimo woman. She was a Caucasian woman, um, friend, uh, a wife of my best friend who was a teacher. And she came in in labor with her first child. I did not manage her OB time, her pregnancy. She was managed by a public health nurse. The nurse was on vacation, and she came uh, in one night, and she was in labor, and she hollered out, because I'd never seen her for her pregnancy. She hollered out, the baby's coming, the baby's coming. So I looked down and getting ready to deliver the baby, and a hand fell out of her birth canal area this little blue cyanotic hand. And, of course, that's undeliverable. That's a shoulder presentation. And this was a setup to lose a baby and probably lose a mother. 
And we had a communication. It was kind of a telephone. It was a thing that, that used, it kind of went through these great big things around the state of Alaska called the White Alice system. It was like satellites, but it, it wasn't to a satellite. It was these big dishes that went across the land. And I had my nurse try to get an obstetrician on the phone in Anchorage. And um, she tried and tried, and finally she made a connection. It was about 2 in the morning in Anchorage. And I got this doctor on the line, and I said, I have a shoulder presentation. Uh, a woman, you know, what am I going to do? And um, he thought for a minute, and he said, pray. And he hung up on me. And I thought, someday I'm going to kill that guy. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> I was left with this situation, and it was just a horrible situation. Didn't know what I was going to do. What did you do? Are you, are you not going to tell us? It's in the book. Well, I'm supposed to say you got to read the book to find yeah. <laughs> No, I, I will be happy to tell you. You want me to tell you what it is? Uh, yes. I scrubbed. I, we didn't have any, they're called gauntlet gloves. We didn't have any gloves that were long enough. I scrubbed my hand, my shoulders, my chest with betadine, and with a bare hand, because I couldn't take a chance on a short glove slipping off, I took that little baby's hand in, in my hand, and I just closed my eyes, and I prayed, as the doctor suggested, <laughs> and I just closed my eyes, and I just reached up inside the birth canal area. I was able to get my hand through the dilated cervix up into the uterus, and I retracted that hand, and then just by the grace of God, there's, there's no other way to say it, I was able to grab a foot, and then a second foot, and I delivered that little baby, and I got that baby out, and when that baby took that breath, I just could hardly believe it. I think I broke down in tears, by the way. But then, the greatest thing, it might be the reason I was born, about 17, 18 years later, in my home in Oregon, we were having some painting done, and a gentleman was painting the house and doing some stuff, and he noticed some Alaska uh, memorabilia around, and he saw our name, and he, he said to me on a Saturday, he said, you know, I see your name is Sims. By any chance, were you a doctor up in Nome, Alaska? And I said, well, I was. And he said, do you remember delivering a little baby that came out hand first? And I said, matter of fact, how do, you know, you don't forget that. How could you forget Why that? Why do you yeah. ask? And this man said, that's my granddaughter, and she just graduated valedictorian from her high school class. And I thought, wow. <laughs> you know, that's, that was really something, and that's, that's probably one of the most moving experiences I've had in my life. So, well, that could be um, end of story. That could be end of story. That really, that's a, that's a, a I mean, it's so moving, obviously. And, Thank you. Uh, yeah, it, yeah, it really was. Yeah. So what does that say for, because I want to, you know, we don't have a lot of time, and I mean, you've had all of these kinds of experience, maybe that was the crowning one to be, but, you know, like what, in terms of, I mean, you had to adapt, you had to survive, you know, you know all of the medical uh, training and skills and techniques really didn't apply in that kind of a situation. So now, taking that story, and we want people to go out and read your book, but let's maybe bring it up to the present. What kind of, yeah. how did that impact you as a doctor, because you've been practicing for many, many years, uh, as a doctor here, uh, with, ha you know, you have all the bells and whistles, you have all the stuff, and today, I think in, in medicine, especially with some of the young guys and gals who practice medicine, uh, it's, it is all about the machines and the technology, and very little about the, what you've been talking about or your experiences in Nome, Alaska. I learned that I came from a rough upbringing. Uh, many people did. 
and I learned I had to adapt to my childhood, and uh, it, it was substance abuse in my family, and just thank God I didn't go that way. But I learned when I was up in Alaska that my training and my experience, just I had just finished internship, no more training than that, they were really going to just let me down, you know, that they weren't going to tell me what to do, that I had to learn to adapt to just kind of using those as a, as a background for my instincts. And, and I learned... At the same as I did when I was a child, that if I could learn to just improvise and be flexible and persevere, just those three principles, I could let my instincts, you know, tell me what to do kind of no matter what. And that's the theme of my book, that I wanted the memoir to not just be an adventure story of what happened to me. I wanted to pass those three principles on to readers that then they could use in their lives um, because we all come to extreme circumstances in our lives. And if you can just learn those three principles, you anyone can adapt to life. And I'm, I'm very happy. I, I was just given a um, blogging gig uh, for Psychology Today, for example, and I'm going to be blogging for about a year with them, and I'm going to be blogging under a title, Under Extreme Circumstances, and what I'll do is I'll relate how I was able to, to have these experiences that I had up in the Arctic and ad- adapt and how it let my instincts, you know, guide me based upon my training. And uh, You I know, I think that's way. so important because I think today there's just, in my experience and even with my own kids and their ac- education and um, there's so much hand-holding, and there's so much sort of, get, you know, getting away from go with your gut or go with your, yeah. you know, intuition, and, uh, and and I don't think that's a good thing. And no, it, as you say, the, you know, looking at the computers and looking at the x-rays and looking at this, you know, you know, I'm hoping that people will listen to one another and they'll talk to one another, and in my profession, I mean, that's all I had. And I, and I think as I was able then to enter my, my real practice and my real life, I, I learned that I'm going to get more information by listening to my patients and the kind of problems, you know, that they had and try to read between the lines a little bit and do my clinical exam. And I was a doctor that used very little x-ray and very little lab work because I tried to, you know, focus my attention and, and my work on what they needed rather than like technology, just tell me what to do. And I carried that all the way through my practice life. And I think much of that was because I had to do that up in Alaska. I had no choice, but I was able to hone those skills because that's all that I really had at that time. Yeah. Well, now you're going to be able to share that with uh, on the blog, which I think is great. I always remember my son's or one of my son's pediatricians saying, you know, the look test. Just look at yeah. look at the baby. Look at the yeah. look at just look at the kid. Does he look well? Does he? You know, I mean, just take a moment to look at him. And and you know, and I always remembered that because as a parent, I did that. But as a pediatrician, he always did that. Yeah. You had a great pediatrician. Let me tell you straight off the bat. Where I trained at Creighton University, um, which is a Catholic Jesuit university in Omaha, Nebraska, my opinion, the best medical school in the country, very, very clinical school. And I had a pediatric um, professor, and that was one of the first lessons that he said. He said, the first thing you do is you look at a kid and you just say, is it a sick kid or a well kid? That's the first thing, really sick or not really sick, you know what I mean? And then focus yourself after that. That's the same advice that you got, and that's great advice. Yeah. 
And then you can look at the specifics, and then there may be. Sure. Yeah. Then, you, then you hone in on, you've got a sore throat or earache or what you have, but first you look, how sick is this kid? And make that determine, and kind of let that guide you where you go. And that's instinct. And that's based upon your training and based upon your experience. And that's what I got up on the Arctic. <laughs> that's for sure. And, and the book, the book doesn't tell people how to use these things. The introduction of the book, I talk about these three principles that you're going to see during during the book. I had to, for example, and, and if I could just tell you just one more little example that we have. There was a, a paranoid schizophrenic gentleman um, in town, and he was sitting uh, atop a hill in a, the village of White Mountain. He was Caucasian. He was a paranoid schizophrenic, and he was shooting at people when they were going down the river. And the uh, Alaska State Trooper came into Nome and told me, uh, they grabbed me out of clinic and said, we have to fly you to White Mountain. You have to get this guy off the mountain. And I said, well, how do you expect me to get him off the mountain? <laughs> and they said, well, that's, that's your decision. You're the doctor. If you can't get him off, we're going to have to shoot him. So I had to figure out a way ahead. What was I going to do to go up in the, on the tundra of White Mountain, Alaska, and try this guy with a rifle, pointing the rifle at me? How am I going to convince him everything is okay to come down on the mountain? Because if they don't, they were going to shoot him. And I was terrified with that, but I had to just stop and improvise and be flexible and use those same principles until I could figure out how to get him down. And, and I ultimately did. Of course, I explained it in the book. And that's the way the whole book is sort of written. It's I'm presented with these horrible, unusual circumstances. How did we deal with it? How do we use these three principles of life to adapt to that situation? Yeah. And it's shown by case, example. By, yeah, and I guess in this case, obviously, you were the doctor, which meant you were an expert in in every single specialty, you were a psychiatrist, a pediatrician, uh, an obstetrician, you know. The trouble is, I was in my, my mid-twenties, and I had no training in any of those things, except, you know, my, my OB experience, three months. That's all I had. Psychiatry, probably six weeks. And it was flying by the seat of my pants. Yeah, well, but you were the attending in all these areas. <laughs> right. Yes, I was. Yeah. You know all the right words. I, I would have died to have had an attending up there. Let me tell you, it would have been wonderful. Yeah. Oh. And so maybe just one last question, because this has to do with family. Uh, it has to, this experience obviously must have had a different impact on your wife, because she wasn't the doctor. She had one, at least one of your babies there. Uh, so what was it, just sort of tying this all together, what was it like for her? And what was it like for you? You know, there must have been strains, I'm assuming, on your relationship. But that's, because it, it's, it, it, you know, I'll stop there. Well, First of all, I'm blessed because I got the right woman right out of the chute, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we've been married um, about 51 years now, I think. And my name is Pat, and um, many people, they say, boy, I did a lot of work, but Pat was the real saint in all of this, that she was just right there, you know, that this was a life experience with her. Um, there was no way that she was not going to join me. There was no way she was going to go to Anchorage and have the baby. And she actually, I credit her for turning uh, the whole corner on the experience that we had in Nome. 
we did have a lot of social issues and a lot of pressure because I represented um, government medicine. I was part of the public health service, and the local hospital there was unable to get or keep a private physician. So the Eskimo people were all um, blessed. They got um, health care. They were entitled to that. The Caucasian people, I was their doctor. I had to do things because I was the only doctor in town, but they resented that. And we had a, we came into kind of some hard times when we first got there, being part of the community. And it was my wife's decision to have the baby in Nome. She said, you know, if these people here, if they don't think you're good enough to take care of me having this baby, they're not going to think you're good enough to take care of them. So she made the decision to stay in Nome and have us have the baby there. And after we did that, Everything changed. We became part of the community. I think people really appreciated what we did, and uh, it made life livable. So I really credit her with, with socially making us acceptable in the area. So you were a good team, and she was a very wise woman in her 20s, yes. I assume. You were in your 20s. Yes, she was. As was yes. she? Yeah. So um, it would have been a very different experience without her. I, I, I oh, I, c- a, I couldn't, yeah. have, couldn't have done it. I literally Could, couldn't have done it to know. Yeah. Well, we have about literally three minutes left. So I want to mention, first of all, your blog. I want to mention that because we can be reading your blog. Um, Thank you. Yeah, the title of the book, On Call in the Arctic, A Doctor's Pursuit of Life, Love, and Miracles in the Alaskan Frontier. Great book, Dr. Thomas Sims. Um, And we can go to this website, oncallinthearctic.com, I guess, for information about the book. So, but... Now, where can we go for information, the blog and uh, any other, you know, uh, anything else that you're doing that would, you know, relate to this, to the book and the, and the topic? The blog will be right on psychologytoday.com, and I'll have my first blog uh, probably in about a week now, and I'll be blogging about once a month for them. Uh, on my website, on callonthearctic.com, um, if persons would like to, to have a personalized Sign book. Uh, they can actually order it through the website. The book is available on Amazon, every place online, available in bookstores everywhere. It's produced, it's um, published by Pegasus Books in New York. And on my website, uh, there is a place where I talk about events. I am trying to put together a speaking engagement calendar. I would really love to speak with audiences uh, about my experience and relate, you know, the theme of my book. And anytime I have a speaking engagement or something people would be interested in, that will be posted on the website on Call on the Arctic. Okay, so we will be following you. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. There's also a web page, you know, uh, not, uh, what is it, uh, Facebook, a Facebook author page. The Facebook author page is under my name, Thomas J. Sims, author. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today, Dr. Thomas Sims. Thank you. Appreciate it a lot. You have a good day. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 